All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Danso Pitch Podcast. I am your host for today, Charles Danso. I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Daniel, how you doing today? How's your weekend going so far? It's going great, man. You know, the weather's getting nicer and summer's around the corner, so excited, man. I'm ready for winter to be done. <laughs> yes, you're definitely super excited, as Daniel mentioned, uh, for the summer coming up. I feel like we've been in winter for almost years now, even though I know it's just been a couple months, but it's just been crazy. But super excited. Uh, I hope you guys are listening as well, watching this. Excited for the summer. Um, we have a lot of content coming out. Um, we're going to see a lot more guest speakers coming. You're going to see a lot more different stations we're going to be actually recording from. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you subscribe, like this episode, share this episode. This is the Danso Pitch. But without further ado, let's get right into it. So today's episode is a pretty interesting episode for those listening and watching this one. This one involves uh, somebody that often gets overlooked in the music industry as a business executive. A lot of people hear the Jay-Z's of the world, the Diddy's of the world, whether good or bad. You hear uh, Jermaine Dupri, you've heard Suge Knight back in the 90s. Uh, you've heard so many other people that are titans in their game. But the one person that gets overlooked that may be the Jordan of this whole thing is Michael Jackson. Now I'm going to explain a little bit more as to what I mean by this. King of pop himself, man. Exactly. The king of pop himself. Now, a lot of people have heard, whether you've either heard through your parents, maybe older siblings, or even just doing a little bit of research, that Michael Jackson at one point controlled the music industry. It is a, lot, it is a reason why a lot of music executives, a lot of corporations in the music business were actually felt threatened by him. It wasn't just necessarily just his popularity. That was one of the key components. But he actually drove most of the market revenue share in the music business. Now, I'm going to explain how that actually came about and obviously bring Daniel into it. So, audience, without further ado, let me get started. So, back in the, in the mid-80s, in 1985, Michael Jackson bought ATV. ATV at the time was a separate entity as itself. Now, it's actually a conglomerate with Sony. I'll explain as to how that happened. But Michael Jackson was actually interested in owning publishing as a result of, you know, obviously being in the music industry for years and obviously coming into his own. So he wanted to actually own the market share and not just necessarily be controlled by it. So he basically uh, put up a bid price. ATV at the time was basically asking for a bid price, which a bid people is how much a company actually puts up in terms of actually trying to sell their business is how much you're basically willing to basically bid like you know when you go to auction and they say you're bidding for who's gonna pay more for this person so basically that's what it means so a bid is basically how much a company is willing to offer how much you're willing to basically offer to purchase that company so the bid price was about 46 million dollars at the time now you gotta think this is the mid 80s so adjusted with inflation that probably be close to the 100 millions at this point in, in the 2020s. But back in the 1985, it was 46 million at the time, which also included the Beatles catalog. Now, Michael Jackson was adamant in owning the Beatles catalog at the time. The reason being the Beatles was the biggest thing since sliced bread, as you all may know. If you live mm -hmm. in any part of the world, you know who the Beatles were. The Beatles, especially back then, were so popular globally. So to actually own 
their whole catalog, which is their whole music albums, whatever sales that they're made, you're getting a percentage of that. You will be the most powerful person in the music industry. Crazy. Now, I, right. Now, obviously, Michael Jackson had a relationship with uh, Paul McCartney because I believe he did a movie with him and he did a couple of um, songs with him at the time. So he basically reached out to the Beatles. He reached out to Yoko, which is uh, obviously, I think that was, it might've been John Lennon, I think uh, his girl or woman at the time. I, I, my apologies if I'm not correct in that, but he basically reached out to her and representative Paul McCartney. And he said, look, I'm thinking about purchasing ATV, this one that controls your music catalog. Would you be okay with it? Obviously, Yoko said yes. Paul McCartney at the time said yes because they couldn't even purchase their own catalog. That's how expensive, that's how profitable it was at the time. The Beatles themselves couldn't actually even purchase it. But Michael Jackson was like, I'm going to do it because I want to have that ability because he knew the value of it. He knew exactly if he was to actually own the catalog, how he can license it. I'm going to get into that a little bit and bring Daniel into it a little bit, but kind of just explain it. Owning that, you make you a powerful motherfucker in the music industry. So moving forward, Michael Jackson wanted to invest in something he was truly passionate about. Obviously, like I said, he's been involved in music since he was a child with his siblings and his family. And now as an adult in the mid eighties, he's like, look, I just don't want to be performing in front of these people, these music executives. I want to be behind the chair as well. I just don't want to be the one that's performing for the people sitting in the chair. I want to have my own seat. So he was really the pioneer. Now, obviously, you guys see Jay-Z's of the world doing this now. That's popularized it. Um, there's so many others. Obviously, you have Diddy that's been doing it for a while, et cetera, et cetera. These are people that are commonly named. But Michael Jackson was more the trendsetter. He was really really not the first to do it because you have Sam Cooke and these are other people that have been in it from like the sixties, but that's a whole nother discussion, but he was more the modernized era. So obviously you have magic bird, you have Bill Russell, but think of Michael Jackson, like Michael Jordan, he really transcended the music industry in terms of ownership, actually owning your work, owning other people's work. And he really popularized that at the time. So Michael Jackson wanted to invest in something like I mentioned, he was truly passionate about, in the investment, as mentioned, he, he, he actually ended up actually owning ATV at the time. And obviously owning the, in that ownership, he actually ended up owning the Beatles catalog and Elvis Presley's publishing, which massively boosts his net worth. His net worth went up almost 100 million off of just that whole ownership thing alone and made him the most powerful motherfucker at the time. Now, some other notable catalogs included people like Cher, the Rolling Stones, etc. Now, when I'm going to bring Daniel, I'm going to bring you into this, but I just want to give a quick example for the audience as to how powerful Michael Jackson became at the time owning this company, ATV. He gets, he will get a check every time, let's say the Beatles song plays in the commercial. An example of this actually happened back in the 90s, the early 90s, Revolution, which was a song by the Beatles, was actually aired by Nike, uh, by Nike in, in a commercial that they shot in the 90s. Just them alone playing that Revolution song by the Beatles in that Nike commercial, Michael Jackson took home a $500,000 payment just for licensing the song to Nike to use in their commercial. <laughs> so just think about that. He just said, Nike came to him and said, hey, 
we really like this song that the Beatles have. We know that you're now the owner of the Beatles catalog. Can we use it? Mike said, okay, but you got, you got to give me a check. You got to cut me a check for me to actually let me allow you to use it. So that's what licensing means, audience, for those that are listening and watching this. Licensing is basically allow, having someone utilize something that you own, but obviously there's a fee that's attached. There's some type of profitability attached to it. For you to actually use that thing, you have to actually get the okay from the person that owns it. And you have to obviously give some sort of uh, compensation. This could be uh, like, a, like he got, he got a check. Some people give ownership or something else in return. There's so many avenues to go. But basically think about that. He just got 500,000 alone just for licensing that song. And that commercial was only a minute and 30. So think about that. You got 500,000, but just you playing a song for a minute and 30. Oh man, that's, that's, that's Titan level. That's Titan moves right there. Yeah. So, I mean, like Daniel, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think a lot of people sometimes overlook just how powerful Mike was at the time. I mean, we know about him through Thriller and obviously so many Man in the Mirror, all these songs, Billy Jean, but we never really, he, I feel like he never really gets the, the, the shine in terms of how much his business acumen was as a music exec. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it really just kind of proliferates how much of a businessman he was uh, equally as he was a, a musician, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, a songwriter and just like the king of pop. Like he understood that in order to maximize his potential, he needed to get the lion's share of the music he was making and exp and expend that because I mean like to have the foresight to say like you know I'm making all this money I'm making all these musics I'm like you know hitting the billboards you know all the time but I'm not really getting all of the profits right like you know Sony or you know whoever whoever is invested you know from the executive level all too many hands are in the pot and I need to isolate myself. I need to be able to get all of that revenue and get all that stream and make decisions with my song, with my music. Because oftentimes these decisions, like you said, the Beatles didn't even really have a say in uh, Nike using their song for a commercial. They went straight to Michael Jackson, right? So it's like, you know, the fact that you can produce a song and then not even have a say in what happens with that song you produce mm -hmm. speaks volume and just how important it is to own your masters and own that that level of, you know, have that ownership, have that power to kind of say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And Michael Jackson did that. And it's not really highlighted. It's something that I certainly didn't know before walking into this podcast. Mm -hmm. And now it just, you know, creates a different image for you know, the king of pop, right? Because like you said, being a trendsetter in that type of, you know, manu maneuvering in that way, especially back then right. in the mid, you know, 80s, it's, you know, like the times have changed, but I feel like the formula is still the same, right? Like there's still, you know, nuances between, you know, now like the Jay-Z's of the world, you know, things are done differently to, to kind of have that same power, but it's the same principle, right? Like, you produce and you own, right? You have both kind of like sitting in your lap and you could choose what you want to do with it. And I think it's just, I mean, 
that that that's just boss moves to me. I mean, like you you owning somebody else's song and just saying, yeah, you know what, you want to use it for a commercial, go ahead. You want to shoot that movie with with the Beatles song, go ahead. Just right. cut me a nice like hundred thousand dollar check, right. and you know, and you know, we 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 talk about kind of like you know how much his net worth was. I mean, mm-hmm. the value of that fifty percent ownership. I think, you know, it was somewhere around $750 million for that 50% ownership that he had with, um, with um, ATV. So, I I mean, and and that's one man, (laughs) you know, like, it's not a group, it's like, like it's one man, you know, like, so I think it really, like, if, if, if you didn't really, you know, understand or, you know, have I guess a certain level of appreciation for Michael Jackson's business acumen, because we always associate him with music and he was a phenomenal musician. Mm-hmm. Right. But his acumen with business is that that is just like that is Titan level. I'm going to keep saying that that's that's really, you know, to have that foresight. Right. Because you're going into music. You know, it, it, there's a lot of, you know, obviously like, like there's lawyers involved and there's a lot of things that come with it. But, you know, the 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 fact is that a lot of artists don't have that power and they produce great content. Take Kanye, for example. We all know Kanye's battle with Universal and how he was trying to get his masters and that whole thing. He was, you know, suing people and all this crap. Like it's, you know, it, it's a long battle. You know, Taylor Swift had to go through the same thing. Like it's, there's, there's levels to this that, you know, when you have the foresight kind of beforehand and the money, because Michael Jackson was rolling, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. He, he had the money to do it. He had that, you know, that he had that backing, but he also had the foresight to like make the moves and set himself up so that he could be in that position of power. I think it's incredible. It's an incredible thing to just, you know, learn about, you know, someone who's passed now, you know, like almost two decades. It's just, it's just great. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you make, you make a good point, you know, just that even at that end point is like even decades later, he's his name is still imprinted in the music industry just based on that business acumen that he had. Now, obviously, be, the, the benefit that he had was obviously being in it since he was a child, since like obviously the 60s and the, into the 70s and obviously in the 80s now that we're in, in discussing him actually looking to own an actual music corporation as itself is very important because obviously he had his his father he had Barry Gordy who was the the owner at the time of Motown Records which was the one that obviously he got signed to with his brothers when they were the Jackson 5 and even thereafter so obviously being around these people being attentive asking the right questions aligning himself with the right legal minds allow him to put himself in position to have that which is really key because in turn a lot of people don't realize on top of him owning people like obviously Elvis Presley's publishing, like I mentioned, the Beatles catalog, Share, and so many others, he also owned his own masters through his own separate company, uh, Mike Jack Records at the time. So he owned 100% of his masters. I'm going to break down what exactly masters means for the audience and the whole process of it. So, you know, Daniel obviously mentioned an individual like Kanye who would think that at this point in time, why doesn't he own his masters? You know, why was it last year he was ranting on Twitter talking about Universal's holding my masters hostage? Well, yes and no, there there is a truth in that, but it's also part of his own doing. I'm gonna explain a little bit exactly why that is and why that process is for many artists like himself and, you know, and why companies like this are reluctant to give 
a lot of these artists their masters because what does that do for the business as a whole? I'm going to explain that, but that's very powerful. So think about that. He owns ATV that owns all these publishing and obviously catalogs of all these music titans on top of his own catalog, which is a beast in itself, which has Billie Jean, The Thriller, Let Me Rock With You, so many other all the like, hitters yeah so all many the hitters, hitters. Knock, knocking out the park and he owns all that he controls all that so much so that sony at the time actually came to him with an offer so huge that he was like you know what i gotta take it but he said i'm only gonna give you 50 percent. i'm still gonna control 50 percent whilst i still own all of my masters so he eventually they did a partnership together ATV and Sony came together and Michael Jackson was 50% owner of Sony slash ATV as well as Sony corporation owning the other 50%. So he still had a board seat. He still had a fair share and he still was getting checks and licensing and, and obviously owning publishing all your favorite artists. So, and to this day, the Mike, Michael Jackson estate still has ownership interests in Sony slash ATV so many people like Jay-Z at the time, before he owned his masters, Beyonce, Akon, Eminem, so many others that he actually still <laughs> gets a check for every time that their music is other uh, used, promoted through whatever you want to do, through commercials, through performances, so much so. And that that's so important, like, yeah. I, like the, because it's not just his music, right? Like, it's not him just receiving royalties from every Michael Jackson song that plays, every Beat It song that plays or whatever. It's also Jay-Z songs, Beyonce songs, right? Like he's getting a little cut of that. Right. And to this day, I mean, you can imagine the amount of years that have passed by all these songs that have been produced. Right. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to emphasize that. Like yeah, 30 the, decades later, it's that, oh, three right? decades later, excuse me. Yeah, it's crazy. Like it's, it's insane. Like even 30 something years later, he's still, his, his family is still eating because we always talk about generational wealth and that's really key. You know, obviously myself and Daniel and many others around are more so being more open-minded to that, but people really, really understanding what that means is, 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 you know, very important. And this is a clear example, even Daniel, like he said, you know, it's not a coincidence that Daniel is like, yeah, like that's insane because really think about that. He got this in 1985. It, we're in 2022, almost halfway going into 2023. And his family is still eating off of the fact of this move he made almost three decades ago, over 30 plus years ago. I mean, that's just insane. That's what real generational wealth is. And that's how it's obtained. Because end of the day, like Daniel mentioned, yes, he built up his name. He built up his brand. He got that money, but he invested it in the right move. He made that right investment that set himself up and his family up for life. So that's really key. So kind of like we just mentioned. So in the music industry right now, publishing is the most sought after thing that companies other are reluctant to give up or are looking to get. Like we mentioned Jay-Z. We mentioned Taylor Swift, her battle with Scooter Braun. I call him the white Suge Knight. But but he basically is like the like if you Scooter Braun is an important name in the music industry to know. If you're if you know anybody named Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber, this guy kind of holds the cards in there and many others. Um, he was an intern for Jermaine Dupri. A lot of people don't know till he branched out and did his own thing. 
but he's one of the Titans that he was in a long, long legal battle with Taylor Swift before she got her masters. But again, like I mentioned, there's a reason why a lot of corporations, you know, they, they take somebody's masters early on. And the reason why a lot of artists down the line, because they sign a check early on when they don't have a lot of money, you know, they're trying to put their family and themselves in a better life, but in doing so, they don't really look at the contracts or really understand the language in there. So many years later, now that they're established, their family's well, and now they have the right legal team and they have a little bit better business acumen. They're like, holy shit, I get, I'm giving up all this. You're making all this off of me for every album sale and I'm not getting the fair share and I'm the one writing the songs performing. So this is a whole ongoing battle that the music industry is facing with its artists, with its talent, its production so forth. And I think this is going to go on for a long time. But as many people like the Jay-Z's of the world, like obviously there's so many others, Taylor Swift, uh, Sierra Now, 21 Savage, he's the one person that owns his masters. So it's uh, Yo Gotti. Obviously he's become a, corp a corporate boss in his own right, but he owned his masters and he talks about how hard it is because getting your masters is a whole process in itself, which I'm going to explain it right now. It's not just, oh, I have like, let's say I have a couple million. So that means I just go to the corporation. I say, hey, Sony, uh, can I get my master's back? No, it doesn't work like that. There's a whole process you have to go through before even they're reluctant to say, okay, I'll give you back your master's. Because remember, they're giving up a lion's share of ownership over you as the artist or, or producer, whatever it is. So for them, for the corporations to give that up, they're losing a fair share of money in, as a result. So in the music business, a master's or master recording, as is often referred to, is the official original recording of a song, sound, or performance. It is the source from which all later copies are made. So I kind of just detailed that for you, audience. And Daniel, give me some time to go through this for the audience, please. So this is very key. Because owning a master's means that whether you're performing a song, so let's say Kanye does niggas in Paris, excuse my language. So Universal gets a lion's share every time that's other performed when they did the tour, that, that performance, there's a fee that goes, that kicks up to Universal. That album, every sale of that, of that album, Watch the Throne, Universal's getting the lion's share of that. Every sound, any type of beat that Kanye makes, Universal gets a cut of that. That's very key. That's why a lot of these artists like Kanye are going to battle because they're, they're like, look, you're, I'm, you're not in the studio from sundown to sunup like I am. You're not on all these tour dates having to be away from my family for months upon end or weeks upon end. You're not the one that has to actually knows how to play these key instruments and actually does all the production for my, my own music and many other artists that are under my umbrella. So why is it that you're getting the lion's share? This is kind of what the masters controls. It basically controls the ability for you to actually own a lot of your creative work as an artist. Master recordings can be distinguished as tapes. There was one time it was tapes, uh, disc, it went Pro Tools, so Pro Tools are basically like uploads. Like if you have like, obviously you do a recording, like you ever, you ever heard where they're like, oh, Future lost his music drive, his producer uh, lost his music drive. Like that's what it means. Like those are what it means by having the later copies. So, and when you own the masters, you control that or have a lion's share of that. 
So owning a master recording is smart business, like I mentioned, is an important aspect of a deal you can't afford to ignore. If you want to hit it big in the music business, that, that doesn't mean that without owning your masters, uh, you don't get a healthy income. You just don't get the lion's share. So what that basically means is, again, like I mentioned, just because you don't own your masters doesn't mean you're not going to get money. No, a lot of these artists get money. You have Meg Thee Stallion, the most recent one. You have Meek Mill. You have Kanye West. They still get money, but they ain't getting Sony money. They ain't getting Columbia money. They're not getting the, what these corporations are getting because when they initially sign these deals, let's say that Kanye gets 10% of every album sale. I'm just throwing the number out there. Universal is getting 90. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not even, big it's difference not even halfway. There's no exactly. halfway, Marcus. And, it's, it's, mm -hmm. And that and that's the crazy part. A lot of people don't realize that's what a lot of these artists and producers are battling is because like that's the joke when Pusha T was like, you sign to one dude that signed to another to sign to another. That's the process. That's what they refer to as a 360. When you're obviously having to your your artwork, your creative artwork as an artist, as a performer is going to many different avenues outside of just yourself. And obviously you will want to feel a ways because you're the one putting in all the work. You're the one that's actually performing, doing this, uh, you know, you're the artist behind that. You're the one writing the music. And as a result, you're not controlling most of that aspect of that component. So the question is obviously asked, who actually owns the master recording? Who's the sole owner of these master recordings? It's easy to think, like I mentioned, that the artists would own their masters since obviously they're the ones that have written the music they are sang it or actually or just performed it all together. Those who work on it may reserve the rights of masters based on the current contract with the respective parties. Now, parties can include things such as the record label, the music producer, the sound engineer, a featured artist even sometimes can own a masters or have, a, have the right to own your masters because of the fact that let's say, let's say example, Daniel, you're, you're a new artist and you go to Drake and you're like, you somehow, maybe, you know, a cousin that's connected to Drake. Maybe, you know, um, uh, maybe your agent is, is connected to Drake or whatever the case is. And you ask Drake, you're like, Hey Drake, I got this song coming out. I want you to take a listen. I want you to, you know, be on it. And Drake take a li listen. He's like, all right, I like this song. And he's like, I'm going to get on it. But for every sale that this song makes, I want 40% of every song that mm -hmm. this song makes that I'm on it, whether it's performed, whether you go on avenues like the breakfast club, whatever the case and the replay, every time it's replayed, I want ownership of that. That's also a form of owning someone's masters and some featured artists do it. It's rare, but it's been done. And I'm sure artists like Drake and many others have done it. Jay-Z has popularized this for getting on uh, some artists and actually owning part of the music that's being distributed just for him spitting six lines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's very important. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really key. So, so again, at the end of the day, the artist may be forced to relinquish his or her master's outright to share with many other people he or she chooses to work with. Now, Daniel, why would you think an artist early on will want to relinquish their masters without really realizing? What do you think some of the key contributors may be of that? I think we touched on it, but really understanding what that may be. What do you think? Well, I mean, it all comes down to money, right? Like you want your music to sell. You want the right people and the right team there, whether it's 
sound engineers, producers, features, like whatever, whatever hands you can get in the pot to make the product that you're selling actually sell, you're going to do it, especially if you're what they call a starving artist, right? Like when you're, when you're in a position where you don't really, you don't have experience in the game, you don't have skin in the game. Like you, you, you're not like at that level where you can make those type of decisions you're gonna it's not like a gun to your head kind of forced but it's like all right if you don't do it then the chances of success kind of dwindle right and it's like you know as an artist it's hard enough already to get a record label to you know sign you or you know get the right team in place to produce the right music so when you get into those rooms it's like okay well it's either, <laughs> I mean, what choice do I really have, right? Like I'm in the room with, you know, the experts. Like I'm not going to turn down a feature with Jay-Z just because he said I need 30% of the profit, right? Because I know having Jay-Z on this song is going to make the song pop out, especially if I'm like, you know, an upcoming artist. Right. So it comes down to whether or not really, you know, like it, it, it's, it's, it comes down to the money. I mean, it, at the end of the day, you know, artists who kind of relinquish those rights, um, you know, they really, one, probably don't have the right legal counsel in the room right. um, to kind of negotiate what can or should be released, right? Because they should fight to retain some ownership mm-hmm. because, you know, for one song with a lot of hands in the pot, it's hard to really maintain at least 50, especially if you have all of the, you know, sound engineers, record labels, et cetera. But you shouldn't be outweighed by all of these options, right? There needs to be like, all right, I need at least something, you know? And I think that's the, that's one of the issues when you get in that room and you're, you're sitting, you know, across the table from, these execs and everyone who's part of this album, let's say, and percentages come into, you know, ownership percentages come into play. And exactly. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, what do you really do? It's, it's kind of like a take it or leave it situation, right? Like, yeah. w- w- you know, it, and, and in that case is, yeah, at the end of the day, artists are kind of forced to kind of make that decision. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, that, that's very key in terms of like what you just mentioned you know, one of the key components, like he said, when an artist is struggling to, you know, obviously eat, you know, I, I, you know, they're coming out, you know, maybe impoverished places, they're trying to get money for their family. So they're desperate. A lot of these people, you know, come up, a lot of these corporations come to them with boatloads of cash, something referred to often as an advance. I'm sure you guys have heard that term Mm -hmm. used before. Usually a lot of these corporations, such as Sony Universal, like in Columbia Records, whatever, the record label you're signed to gives these artists advances. Now, a lot of these artists see a couple million, you know, hit their account, you know, obviously used for the studio time, but obviously, you know, they got to get fresh or they're going to get the houses, the cars, the jewelry. That's nice, but you got to recruit that. And that's part of the contract. That's where a lot of artists fail to realize. Why do you think it takes artists so long to get off a label? It, and why do you think they usually give them a certain amount of albums they have to come out with? Because they know that they're going to miss be using this money and they're going to ask for more. Even, and remember, numbers are very key. A lot of these corporations give targets as to what they expect these artists will hit. Not every artist is going to hit 180 units. Not everybody's in the stratosphere of Kendrick Lamar. Some people, 
you're going to make a certain number. And these, these uh, corporations know that. And as a result, they, they kind of dwindle that money around. They're like, hey, you know, your album ain't really doing too well, but we got a second one coming. But before you realize that when album four or five comes in, maybe the numbers weren't hitting as much as you thought originally it would. Maybe the, maybe the, you know, the, the, the taste of it isn't necessarily as great as when you first started. Maybe you're like, man, this music shit is crazy. Why do you think a lot of these artists say, man, fuck these labels, fuck this and that, because they got them on a string. It's a repetitive cycle where even with Kanye, all those great marketing campaigns he was doing and all those advances he was getting from Universal, that was a lot of fucking money. And as a result, when he was signing a lot of those contracts early on, when he was trying to get his name started, I'm sure you saw the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. That was very key. And it's not that Kanye doesn't have the money to pay them back. It's just because of more so the contract that he signed, he has to fulfill it. And there, and I don't know what the contract is. That's why they say, get your lawyers. Even if they give you those advances, use that percentage, some of it to get you a great lawyer. Don't worry about the jewelry early on. Don't worry about the shine early on. You're, that will come. Trust me. That will come with time. But having the ability to get 100% of your album sales, of your performance sales, your ticket sales through touring would, is very key. And it, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, a lot of patience. You may have to look broke for a couple of years. And I know, obviously, I'm not an artist, but I'm sure the flash is part of the, the bravado, so to speak. You have to look flashy, this and that, because that was that's what kind of sells. But there's ways to do it. And I'm sure I'm not an artist. Like I said, maybe the next episode we can get an artist, someone that we may know that actually can kind of give a better breakdown of this. So, again, like I said, it's, it's key. But for these corporations, hire a, a, a recording lawyer, hire somebody that understands the music business early on before signing the contract. It's hard. I get it. I've been broke many times. I struggle many times to get a check sometimes because you got it going in so many other places. But it's really discipline. You have to have the discipline because end of the day, yes, the money looks great early on. But as a result, down the line, you know, you're going to rethink a lot of things once you have the money now in your pocket, but you don't have the control to freely deal with it as you would please. Think about that. Think about that, Daniel. You have a couple million in your pocket. But you know, you could really begin like 10, 20 million, but it's going all to somebody else, a corporation that basically has your balls, quote unquote, <laughs> by, <laughs> by their hand, because, and they can tell you that you have to perform even if you don't feel like doing it. This is the battle that artists like you hear, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys follow many news outlets. And I know we have a couple minutes, so I'm going to wrap it, but we have a couple of news outlets, like obviously the ongoing battle with Carl Crawford and Meg The Stallion. That's one of the key things. Now, obviously, she's frustrated, I'm sure, but she probably signed a contract that she has to fulfill. If I had to put two and two together, that she probably didn't finish fulfilling. And as a result, every time she has to perform or do something, this guy that she's battling with is still going to get a share. And these are so many things. She's one out of many artists that deal with this. So obviously, you know, it kind of just wrapping it up with two minutes left. One of the things I wanted to just mention was Mike Jackson this is why it's so key. Not everybody's going to be Mike. I get that. Not everybody's going to be Jay-Z, but you don't have to be. The point of what we're saying and emphasizing is ownership, 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 ownership. Always think about that before signing any deal, any contract. What does your ownership look like? It doesn't matter whether you're starting out and you're trying to get your name out there or whether you've been established and you're trying to get out there. 
What does your ownership look like? How much are you really getting? How much are all these people that are paying you these amount of dollars? How much are they making off of you? These are all things to think about as a, as a business person, not even just an artist, as a business person, because you are a business person, you are a business, you're an entity of a business as an artist, as whatever, entrepreneur, end of the day. So as a creative, so to speak. So again, what are you having to give up to get your dreams put in place? How much are you willing to sacrifice? I think that's the question that, you know, we want to get you guys thinking. How much are you really willing to give up? And think ahead. Yeah, exactly. Think ahead. Think, you know, that's because that's what Michael did, right? He he understood that in the long run, Mm -hmm. he needed to save and put aside the money that he was getting because he was making great music, making great money. Put aside those millions in order to buy those ownerships, buy himself into a position where he could make those executive decisions, right? Exactly. Have that ownership within ATV, have those, you know, those record labels under him so that he could, you know, be that person. So those are the things that when you walk into the room, what is the plan, you know? Exactly. And, that, and, that, and that's what exactly is a great point that Daniel made. What is your plan before walking into those rooms? Think about that, creators. Thank you, those, for, though, for tuning in for this episode. Again, my name is Charles Dancer, joined by the great Daniel Goodman. This is the Dance or Pitch podcast. The king of pop is why, why, why did he threaten or make these corporations feel threatened by him? Check this episode out. Like, subscribe, the Dance or Pitch. See you guys next episode. Peace. Peace out. Peace.